0: Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is your weekly X-Men podcast, where we rank every story from A to Z. I'm Zach, and with me is a uh, is a guest that really needs no introduction. Uh, he is one of the co-hosts of Jay and Miles X-Plane, the X-Men, the number one unofficial X-Men, uh, you know, podcast. And you know the pe- the people that we're kind of shooting to take down, and have not been able to achieve that yet. But we're we're gunning for him. Figured we get. Get in, bring Miles Stokes on here, get his defensive down, and then we could really go for the attack. Miles, how are you doing today?
1: I am doing really well, Zach. Thank you so much for having me on your show, even if I have just learned that I need to uh, watch my back around you and Adam. Nonetheless, friendly rivalry is, is still friendly. Uh, so, yes, I, I'm doing great, and I'm excited to talk about some dinosaurs. How are you?
0: I am doing so great glad to have you on and really glad to talk about dinosaurs uh this is gonna be a weird one folks (laughs) uh i'll tell you the the reason why i wanted to bring miles in on this one is because on a jay and miles explain the x-men which is one of my personal favorite podcasts and frankly i'm not gonna get sappy but one of the inspirations for this show oh thank you so uh, much i mean look you, you had to know that that was coming, right? <laughs>
1: I very much appreciate it regardless.
0: <laughs> uh, no, no, that's, uh, that's good. But, Miles, you've got this unbridled enthusiasm for the weird stuff in X-Men.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like all the serious and sappy stuff as well, but when X-Men just goes bananas, there is a part of my heart that sings its Claremontian song, and the stuff we're talking about today pretty much entirely triggers that little heart portion.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a lot of uh, Claremontian bananas in this. Uh, This episode is brought to us, by the way, from Patreon supporter Rob, no last name, uh, who went on over to patreon.com slash Files threw money our way, and said, guys, I want you to talk about that time that Rachel got turned into a dinosaur.
1: And So we're going to. Zach, thank you so much for thinking of me for the time Rachel got turned into a dinosaur, because years later, I guess a fair bit more than a decade later, I still have not fully wrapped my brain around the fact that that happened, although I guess the fact that it's a Claremont comic makes it make
0: a little more sense. This is Claremont's third run on Uncanny. This is his second return to the title. Uh, Uncanny X Men, uh, four fifty five to four fifty nine. I think it has a real title like Heart of Ice or something like that. But it's the it's the Dino Rachel story. It's the one where she thinks she's a dinosaur so hard that her body starts to turn into a dinosaur.
1: Right, so we have uh, mind control, because mind control from a telepathic dinosaur man is what starts it, and we have transformation, so we have two big claremont tropes right there in front of us, but seldom used so memorably, although there was that one time that Jean Grey's arms turned into tentacles for a while and she was totally cool with it.
0: Uh, there's a lot about Chris Claremont that I love, there's a lot about Chris Claremont that I have questions about, uh, and... The tentacle arms are one of them. I try not to think about them so much.
1: I can't stop thinking about them.
0: I mean, just well, why?
1: He does it again with
0: Callisto, though. That's the thing. You like what you like, I guess. I guess, man. Oh, Daddy Chris, what what choices you make sometimes. You make good comics, though, so we're going to let it slide. Uh, in this one, Daddy Chris has an incredibly good collaborator with him. That is, of course, the incomparable Alan Davis.
1: Oh, yeah, Claremont and Alan Davis and Mark Farmer on Inks. So we have Mm -hmm. uh, some of our Excalibur mainstays here. And in fact, this story arc and really this whole era reminds me a hell of a lot of Excalibur in tone as well as
0: in terms of the creative team. Well, it starts with a story about uh, the X-Men fighting the Fury, who, while not an Excalibur villain, uh, pretty well associated with the uh, Captain Britain mythos. We also have some Jamie Braddock
1: later on. He's the one that ends up being responsible for Psylocke's, uh, at this this time, Unexplained Resurrection in this arc. So yeah, it's Excalibur stuff all over the place.
0: Yeah, this this arc's odd. Like you mentioned, it starts with Psylocke, who had been killed by Vargas, everyone's favorite extreme X-Men villain. Uh, And she just kind of appears, which gets the X-Men all riled up, gets them captured by the... uh, the Haka people, who are lizard humans, dinosaur humans, and taken to the Savage Land, where they have a big plan to cause another Ice Age using storm for some unexplained reason.
1: Right, and it gets pretty pretty apocalyptic. I mean, by the last issue, we have the entire world covered by superstorms, and that ice age is starting. And I looked it up, and the Haka, these dinosaur people, I'm pretty sure they only show up in this arc. And that's kind of weird. I feel like if you're going to have a world-ending threat, maybe it's because of, I don't know, Magneto, like in, in Fatal Attractions, or Apocalypse, like in any number of stories. But no, it's just this little army of angry dinosaur people who have a trio of their own superheroes who almost
0: successfully end the world. Yeah, it's odd. They uh, they pull a cask of ancient winters here, uh, but not as uh, interesting. End of the
1: day. Oh, I thought of the exact same thing because, of course, I love Simonson's Thor more than
0: I love most things hey, in the hey, world. Hey, Simon Simon Simonson's Thor is pretty good. I don't know if people know this. He's still doing Thor comics at IDW right now. He's he's good at Thor.
1: And, in fact, as we record this, I believe today, although my comic shop didn't get a shipment in, uh, there's an anthology Thor book that Simonson does a little work in, just a little one-shot. Oh,
0: dang! That's right. I forgot to forgot to read that. Oh. I'm excited. Man. He's very good. Mm-hmm. He's very good at Thor. Uh, what What's interesting here? So, I think Alan Davis, this isn't my favorite Alan Davis work, but... Uh, it's, I don't know, it just, I may, it might be Dean White's coloring here, and White is an excellent colorist. He's doing an incredible job on X-Force right now, but I'm not sure his palette really fits with this. It, it may be that, or it may be that Davis has to draw some weird stuff, but not weird in the charming way that he normally gets to draw stuff in, like, say, Excalibur. He has to draw Rachel walking around like a dinosaur, and that's that's a tall task for even him.
1: It really is. Yeah. When she first starts believing she's a dinosaur person and is just like walking around with her little T-Rex arms in front of her, but otherwise looking totally normal. But I I completely agree. Like Alan Davis is a phenomenal artist. He's got the same anchor he used to have back in the day. And so I think it is indeed a mix of colors and content. I think his art is better served by the flatter colors that we used to see in the 80s and in the early 90s before digital coloring became a thing. The more three-dimensional contoured colors that we have in this story, his art, it's like the contoured colors make his art look flatter paradoxically.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely, they don't. They don't have. They don't jump off the page like they do in you know his Excalibur or his Captain Britain work, uh, which is unfortunate, honestly. Because Davis and Claremont should be a slam dunk, and they're not. Claremont Claremont does some things here. Claremont makes some choices in terms of the story. He tries to uh, write very early Laura Kenny, X twenty three, but you can tell that he doesn't know what to do with the character. And Marvel doesn't know what to do with the character right now?
1: Yeah, I feel like there's a straight line from, I'm not going to say NYX, but from the original X-23 miniseries to all-new Wolverine. Like, that is a, mm-hmm. that's some believable character development. And here, it's just sort of a, a, a weird left turn in a very different direction. She's this almost feral child. She's almost uh, naive to the ways people interact. And there's a little bit of that for Laura in her story, but she's also very smart and very perceptive.
0: And I don't know that that really comes through here. It absolutely doesn't. It's also weird that she's running around in the Fang costume.
1: It's weird, but I also kind of love it. I remember just noticing that costume when it first comes up in the story. I don't remember if it's explained why she's wearing it, but she's being so excited that she put on the same random costume that Logan did back in the Dark Phoenix saga. Mm -hmm. Or near the Dark Phoenix saga.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, dark Phoenix adjacent mm-hmm. uh it's it's an odd story. I don't think it works super well. There's a point where the Savage land mutates just kind of show up for the final act uh and the the whole resolution of this thing really feels just jumbled. it's not it's not the type plotting that you want uh, and it's unfortunately real indicative of kind of the stuff that Claremont was doing around this time this this return run. I think it has some ups and downs. I think uh, r- real soon after this, he gets into the end of the Greys and that whole Phoenix Rachel story, which is a heck of a lot better suited for the character uh, than this. Uh, but this one, this one's a bit of a miss for me.
1: Yeah, I, I think I would agree. But because I'm me, I feel like let's we should bring a few positives uh, into this whole thing. So, Oh, absolutely. Positive, positive number one. I agree that Claremont doesn't get Laura, but I think Alan Davis totally gets Laura. I love Mm -hmm. the way he draws X-23. She looks like somebody who would believably share that much genetic material with Logan. That's something we saw near the start of All New Wolverine, and we totally see it here. I like that she's not a -hmm. traditionally sexy, pretty teen the way she often is. Like She looks vicious and strong, and I love it and I also really like her relationship with Psylocke I think Claremont does a good job with that of Laura finding a female role model in a way that she hadn't before like she'd certainly been close to female characters I mean you know her mom some of the NYX characters etc but she just kind of wants to be Psylocke like there's this one panel where Psylocke's braiding her hair all elegantly and Laura's trying Mm -hmm. to do the same thing and it's, it's just perfect
0: it's very cute
1: beyond that though Rachel is a dinosaur, I mean, okay, it's kind of a dumb story, but I have to respect the story for going there, for spending five issues of having her gradually starting to walk around in more and more dinosaur poses and turn her face into a weird dino Rachel Grey. This is what makes X-Men X-Men, this kind of stuff being thrown in there with all of the great
0: character work, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's... This is an odd one. I, I remember reading it the first time and being perplexed by what was going on, and I jumped back, and I had not, I had not revisited this in several years. Uh, coming back, I am still not sure what happened, but I'm not going to forget this story. That's, that's the one thing.
1: Exactly. Good or bad, it is absolutely memorable.
0: Now, we have a lot of memorable stories on uh, this master list. That is, in fact, counting down the best and worst X-Men stories of all time. We have 309 stories on this list. The number one story is The Dark Phoenix Saga, which proves that Chris Claremont does a lot of good stuff. Uh, Number 100 is All New Dupe. Uh, Number 200 is X-Men 118 to 119, The Submergence of Japan. Uh, and let's see, at the three hundred spot, we have X-Factor Special, Prisoner of Love.
1: Okay, well this, I mean, we're certainly looking at, uh, at, at bottom half, and that may even be a little generous.
0: What do you think, Zach? It, I'm, I'm trying to think, we don't have much from this era of Claremont on here. We have God Loves Man Kills 2, which I think this is much better than, and that's near the bottom. Uh, but we also have uh, what else do we have? We have the story, uh, the end of Greys, which I like a lot, which is a lot close to the top. Uh, I don't think this is as good as number two twenty-five on our list right now, which is Bishop's Crossing, another story that is very memorable and lovable, uh, even if it may be flawed as a narrative.
1: Yeah, no, I I love Bishop's Crossing. That is that's
0: absolutely better than this story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh I think this is worse than uh around the same era, Uncanny X-Men four oh one to four oh six X Core, which is at two thirty. Uh and here here's where here's kind of where I'm looking. I think this is better than two forty seven Colossus Bloodline, which is the story where we find out that Colossus is related to Rasputin. You know that one.
1: mm mm-hmm. I, I can never forget that one.
0: <laughs> i think this works better than that uh where i'm at two spots above that is x-men four and five the brotherhood of evil mutants which starts out with a real strong story on number four and an absolutely wild one on number five where a toad uh tries to infiltrate the olympics and they end up in space somehow <laughs>
1: <laughs> a lot happened back in those old silver age issues
0: They they went from Magneto's going to become the fascist dictator of a island nation in uh, Central America to he has a uh, he has an asteroid and is going to hijack the Olympics in like two issues right there. That was your two parter. Uh, I think four of that issue is stronger than this. Uh, But I do think this is better than what's right below that, which is X-Force and Cable Annual number 1995, which, for those of you playing at home, is the time that they went to the beach and uh, the Impossible Man showed up. Oh, you guys are going to be covering that on J&M soon.
1: We are. That is looming in the
0: distance. That one will be fun. I, I think I like this about as much as I like that annual, that 95 annual uh, do you have any thoughts one way or another on that particular pairing?
1: I feel like that's a that's a pretty good spot for it, yeah. Um, a little bit below Operation Zero Tolerance, which, you know, had some flaws but also some good stuff. And so, yeah, I think if we're looking at mixed stories with some good elements but ones that maybe can't make it out from under the shadow of the bad ones, that's a pretty good spot for this story.
0: Well, then I, I think you're right. Let's make this the new number 246 on our list uncanny x-men that time rachel became a dinosaur uh but we are we are not done with these uh jurassic uh hijinks i was trying to think of a different period of dinosaur times but jurassic's the only one that i had going and that doesn't rhyme with hijinks at all jakes i guess with jurassic jokes something like that i feel like if jay
1: was on the show instead of me he would totally have a dinosaur era you could throw in there he knows so
0: much about dinosaurs uh, well, do you know who else knows a lot about dinosaurs? I mean, uh, Alan Davis, kind of. Alan Davis does kind of know a lot about dinosaurs, and I think that's very, uh, very true. I was also thinking about someone that Alan Davis uh, did right, which is the Sauron from Earth 99,476.
1: Yep, we have another alternate universe, and it is full of dinosaur people!
0: More dinosaur people! And more Alan Davis. Yeah. Oddly enough, uh, the the entire cast of Excalibur and Excalibur 51 here, written by Alan Davis uh, with pencils by Dougie Braidwith, whose name I just mispronounced real bad, and I feel bad about that.
1: I'm sure he doesn't mind.
0: Uh, I'm sure he doesn't listen to this podcast. I can, I can tell you on one hand uh, the number of comic book professionals who listen to this podcast— It's very low, which good for them. They should be spending their time making good comic books and not listening to these goofs. (laughs) Uh, But uh, we're talking about Excalibur number 51 called Don't Drink the Water. It's uh, the cover of Excalibur where everyone's a dinosaur except for Rachel, oddly enough.
1: Yeah, well, okay. So Rachel Summers at this point in continuity was unique in the multiverse. So, uh, you know, that scans.
0: That's right. That's right. That was one of Claremont's... uh, weird uh rules that kind of just no one listened to yeah that really fell by the wayside but it's interesting so this is right after a massive end to alan davis's first big arc on excalibur uh for his return at least his righteous return as some would say uh where they fought necrom and rachel uh she uh she wasn't doing so hot so they decided to give us something completely different
1: Yes, that was a stellar, climactic story. It was all kinds of dramatic and had giant consequences, and I love that Davis decides to follow that up with this silly, silly one-shot.
0: It reminds you that, at at its heart, Excalibur really is a fun and funny book more than anything else. Uh, It's got a lot of heart, it's got a lot of, you know, wacky hijinks in it, it's, it's a really unique mix among the X-Men books, and that really shows here because what Davis does is takes us away from the main team and gives us a team, team of Britannicus Rex, uh, Shadow Compass Saga, a very long name that is a pun that I don't understand, but I assume Shadow Cat but a Dinosaur is really what he was going for, uh, Megon and Night Strutter.
1: And don't forget brigand, Brigandier Alice Don Stewart and uh, her twin brother Alisaur Sor- <laughs> Stewart. I
0: forgot about that. Yes, it's good. Uh, and also, Sauron's here. He. <laughs> He's he just is. a different colored Sauron.
1: Yeah, I love that in this universe, he never had any kind of horrible transformation, but since it's a dinosaur universe, he still looks kind of the same as his horrible transforms dino self from the main universe, except, like, pinkish instead of green. And also, this it's, sort of hunched-over, harmless-looking
0: scientist. It's a very good gag uh, that Davis pulls off. And what what's weird about this, he, uh he takes what was legitimately just a national lampoons vacation joke that happened early in excalibur uh and like we're talking single digit excalibur and then just like says oh wait we got to deal with this ramifications of the things we did uh we got to bring them back to the regular universe
1: i love that davis never forgets any little thrown-away plot bit from his run with Claremont. Like, I love the fact that Kylan comes from a little kid who also wandered into a widget portal way back in the day. Like, Davis milks that stuff for all it's worth, and it makes it all feel planned and deliberate, even though it almost certainly was not, and I love him for that. I love that he makes the Marvel Universe just seem so much
0: more cohesive than it actually is. Davis is such an interesting character when it comes to that, because he... I say character like he's fictional. Dallas Davis is, I assume, a very real person who has very real feelings and emotions and seems nice. Uh, but he really, you know, focuses in on, especially in this era, you know, we, we started something. Instead of going back and just trying something new, let's look at some of those loose plot threads and pull something together from it. It's something that you don't see a lot in comics today— Uh, Partly by the nature of runs being, you know, a little bit tighter, a little bit shorter than that. Uh, But it's something that Claremont really excelled at. And Alan Davis really pulls from that exact same well here to his to his credit.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the fact that he uses it here I think is perfect as well. The fact that we have this silly story about an alternate dinosaur world that both ties into continuity and references continually and hilariously the fact that Excalibur is so exhausted from the last big storyline that they just sleep through the entire thing.
0: Uh, it's very good. Also very good is uh, Die Thomas, who has to deal with the other side of this, which is back in the 616, uh, there's just a bunch of dinosaur people hanging out, and Die Thomas don't know what to do about this situation. He's just trying to get it resolved and go back to his day job. Uh, keeps calling Excalibur. They ain't picking up the phone.
1: Man, long-suffering Di Thomas never gets old. Like, he's he's at his best when he's at his grumpiest, uh, and he just gets more and more chances to be grumpy. He's kind of like the across-the-pond version of J. Jonah Jameson, but uh, differently lovable.
0: Differently lovable, less good facial hair and regular hair. Uh, but we're not going to hold that against Die. Uh, I- I'll tell you, this is an interesting story. I like it. It's fun. It's charming. Probably a bit of a throwaway when compared to uh, some of the other Alan Davis stuff, but still a real, uh, real fun little story here with some excellent designs. As much as you know, I may not like the Rachel design from that last story in the Savage Land. I like how the dinosaurs look in this one too. They're fun. Uh, art. The art's good. I like it. It may not reach, you know, Alan Davis' peak, but as far as fill-ins go, this is a pretty good uh, solution for it.
1: Yeah, very much so. Like, it's uh, it's a silly, non-continuity-relevant overall fill-in, and it does that job phenomenally.
0: It really does. Uh, now, we have, a, we have a handful of Excalibur stories on our list right now, uh, some of them written by Davis, some of them drawn by Davis, uh, some of them not— uh, number fifty-one is the righteous return of Alan Davis. That's Excalibur forty-two to forty-seven. Uh, you know the first half of the story that comes right before this, uh, and I think that one's a lot better than this, uh, just uh, yeah, by absolutely. nature of being that strong. Uh, I think Mojo Mayhem is better than this. I it's... think that time that uh, I think that time that Rachel had to fight Galactus on those big splash pages is better than this.
1: That one I'm not so sure about. For me— Really? Yeah, okay. So it's a fun issue, but for me, if I recall correctly, that came after a big arc, and that felt like a little bit more of a letdown simply because it wasn't as big of a contrast, you know? Like, it went from the cross-time caper, which was this over-the-top story to another over-the-top one-shot. So I like this one a little bit better personally, but that
0: is a very subjective opinion. I need to make a clarification. This is the other time that Rachel fought Galactus when it was all splash pages in the same issue that uh uh what Megan and Captain Britain got engaged, not the one at the end of the cross time caper. Oh,
1: well that changes everything. Yes, that story is amazing yes, I, and it's totally better I, than this I, one.
0: I agree with everything you're saying about that story that we that I wasn't discussing. I forgot that they did that twice.
1: <laughs> Rachel and Galactus, you know, they just like oil and water, except
0: in space. That's a good pairing, and they should do that one more. Let me see. I know we have a cross-time caper story on here, and I'm trying to uh, trying to find it. At number 124 on our list, we have Excalibur 12 and 13, uh, which is the start of the cross-time caper. Uh, that time they went to the Camelot world and Kitty didn't get married, which is a very common trope for her.
1: That is a really fun story. That's before the cross time caper goes fully off the rails. I quite
0: mm-hmm. like that arc of it. Okay. Well then we we can definitely drop it there, because I think I think we're in the right ballpark though. This is a good story, maybe not a incredible one. I would agree, yeah. Uh let's see. Uh you guys just recently talked about Phalanx Covenant Generation Next, which is at 146 on our list. How would you compare that to this?
1: Oh, I think Generation Next does a good job of character work, setting up what comes next. It's a good Banshee focus. I think I'd put Generation Next a bit higher than this story.
0: Okay, perfect. We'll scroll down just a a tad. How do you feel about this? This is farther along than you guys are, uh, but compared to Excalibur 91, that time they all go to a bar.
1: Oh, oh, that's a hard comparison. Right now, I'd put it a little bit above. of that one but i think that just may be my utter love of davis eclipsing my still
0: significant but slightly smaller love of ellis i i think that's fair that's a interesting issue but not perfect i think this is here's what i'll say i think this is better than wolverine and the x-men the hellfire saga at 153 but i don't like this as much as the road trip era x-force at a 152
1: Yeah, I would agree on both counts. I think between those is a good spot to put
0: it. Well, that's where we're going to put it then. As our new number 153, Excalibur 51, Don't Drink the Water. Nice. Now, our last story that we're going to be discussing today is an interesting one. Now, on your guys' show, and I I don't want to make comparisons except for it's very easy to make comparisons about two X-Men podcasts. (laughs) Y'all skipped most of the Silver Age, which don't besmirch you i don't i don't want to cause any shame for that that's that's a good decision that most people should make what you did miss was all that Roy thomas and neil adams stuff like the time in uh 60 to 63 where they go to the savage land yes and that is
1: a stellar story and you're totally right i've been thinking a lot about this as i've been rereading that story in preparation for this episode like the different runs of the Silver Age, I'm I'm just so hot and cold on them. But the Roy Thomas Neil Adams era of Silver Age X Men is glorious. I love it so much. It's just melodrama and over the top glory all the time, and that is very much the case here.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you got Roy the boy. He's writing this one, and he's said before X Men weren't his thing. He was he was doing this because you know that was the job. Uh, I this would have been nineteen either sixty nine or seventy, so he wouldn't, or he either was just EIC or was about to become EIC uh, for Marvel, uh, which puts this in an interesting position. Uh, And then on the other hand, you got Neil Adams, who it's at the start of him being you know Capital N Capital A Neil Adams. Uh, but shows definitely why he became that because this is this is next level compared to some of the stuff that was happening right beforehand. It is amazing, yeah.
1: We have that wonderful sketchy quality to his art. I think really highlighted in this era. We have, in the few occasions that Havoc uses his powers, the definitive version of those powers. We have absolutely, yeah. We have dinosaur men defining what dinosaur men should look like. Not vampires, mind you, because comics code,
0: but dinosaur men. It's Sauron's first appearance. Sauron is very good. Uh, You do get a scene of him reading Lord of the Rings and then saying, I'm going to name myself after a character of Lord of the Rings uh, because that's the ultimate evil, which I understand that the Silmarillion had not come out at at this point. uh, But Morgoth, once called Melkor... Uh, is more evil than Sauron in Tolkien canons. And this this panel always bugs me because of that.
1: You know, we may be looking at a Marvel Universe where if you're a doctor of one thing, you're a doctor of everything. But Carl Lycos yes. does specialize a little more in hard science than literature. So
0: I'm going to give him the pass on that, but just barely. Just barely, I think, is fair. Uh, it, here's the thing we forget about Sauron. He starts with like this super sappy backstory.
1: Super sappy and then immediately bonkers, yeah, because he—I think his, like, parents die and he's adopted by this rich guy who's a jerk, but the rich guy's daughter he's in love with, and but he can't marry her because he's not rich enough. And it's almost like a romance comic until the dinosaurs show up. Yeah, then he becomes a dinosaur. It, it, it's perfect, and he becomes a dinosaur because his energy-absorbing mutant powers interact with that time that a bunch of pteranodons bit him in the Savage Land. Because science, this is how science should work in any sort of a just society.
0: As someone with a bachelor's of science, I can confirm that uh, some of that sounds like science. <laughs> very science it, It's It's very much science-adjacent, which is good enough for our purposes here. We just we just like to play around with science, uh, maybe maybe not actual science, but close enough, uh, which works in this comic because we get the stuff with Sauron, which is interesting. He mind controls some people. They end up in the Savage Land, uh, and then Angel gets a, uh, well, I captured is the wrong word. He gets cared to cared by by a uh, by a nice older gentleman in a science suit uh, with you know silvery white hair. Who takes him in and tells him some things, unbeknownst to him, but the readers quickly find out. We've seen this gentleman before. It's a, it's Magneto.
1: Oh, okay, that's the part you're talking about. I thought you are still talking about Lycos. I was so very, con- I was very confused. Oh, so, no, that's fine. Okay, yes. Okay, so after you say uh, we've seen this gentleman before, we have, but we've never seen him outside of his snazzy bucket helmet. And I love that. I love that the plot twist as, you know, this old white-haired dude takes care of Angel, is that he's Magneto, and the only reason we didn't know is because back in the day, you didn't used to ever see villains without their costumes.
0: Yeah, he, he just didn't have his hat on.
1: Exactly, which I feel like that's how you do a secret identity. If you just wear your uniform all the time, 100% of the time, then when you later show up wearing an orange jumpsuit with ray guns on your hips and a jet pack on your back, nobody's going to know it's you.
0: Yeah, uh, I so I know Silver Age Magneto is, let's say, not consistently written or kind of bad and without motivation or a knockoff Dr. Doom with magnet powers. I I get all of that. It's weird here that he's trying to genetically engineer a bunch of mutants, right? Like, I don't think magnetism can do that.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like how he used to be able to astrally project and control people's minds, and eventually it was just the technology in his helmet. You just sort of go with it. Like, heroes and villains could do lots and lots of things. It was like Superman super weaving back in the day. Like, that was just the Silver Age. That was how it worked.
0: It did. It's, it's very interesting to see, you know, Neil Adams, who really his style was one of the definitive Bronze Age styles, seeing him draw a true silver age story it's a little wacky to me in a good way
1: yeah i think it i think it absolutely elevates the story as well because as much as it's incredibly silly if you think about it like thomas's declamatory dramatic prose and adams's really very realistic art like it makes it work. It lets you suspend your disbelief. And so you can appreciate, on the one hand, that Magneto just turned a caveman into a frogman because he wants to make more mutants. But on the other hand, there's this genuine drama to what Lycos is going through. Like, it's, it's the perfect mix. And I think that's something that X-Men at its best often has. Ridiculous concepts, but with straight-faced executions.
0: Do you think Magneto made that frogman because he missed his friend Toad?
1: I think that's really the only explanation. Yeah. Amphibious, I think, is his name. I also like that the names are very on the nose, although the fact that we have uh, a henchman with forearms who is not named Forearm offends my ninety sensibilities. Look, the Rob would
0: resolve that for us, and we're all the better because of it. But yeah, the, the Savage Land mutates are a weird bunch because they show up, all the time when you want to end up in the Savage Land. They showed up in that uh, Claremont Davis story that we talked about at the top of this. But they are I don't get them and they're not good and I don't really care about them at all. Yeah,
1: and well, I think part of that is that their origin doesn't make any sense and they're not given much beyond that origin. Like the idea of just creating mutants using technology, the mutant metaphor doesn't really work when you... Not only do that, but do that in caveman land. Like you don't have society to hate and fear you. Instead, you just have dinosaurs to eat you, and they're trying to eat everybody.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, credit where credits do. The dinosaurs have got to do what they got to do to survive. I don't, I don't hold that against them, but it does break down some of the more subtle nuances of the mutant metaphor. I would agree.
1: Yeah, I think the most interesting the mutates have been was actually in an otherwise utterly forgettable X-Men Limited issue um, that we just recorded on my show. I don't think the episode is is going to be out yet when this comes out, but just the idea of them as perpetual henchmen, like, there's a hook. You can do something with that, but as hooks goes— Is that
0: that, is that, that one with Sauron on the cover?
1: It is, yeah, and the one with, uh, I think, seven different inkers and, like, three different letterers, and oh, man, it's it's rough.
0: Oh, God bless Crunch Time Comics. Yup. Oh, that, that, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the mutates don't really work here. Magneto, I like the Magneto reveal. I think that works really well. Uh, but he's otherwise baffling in this story. The the X-Men are very much high drama. Uh, but the real star of this, I think, is absolutely Neil Adams' uh, artwork on this. It's gorgeous stuff. It's worth reading. I think it takes Silver Age X-Men into a way – into a different level. And I'm so curious to see what if the book didn't get canceled and this is where X-Men kind of started from and we ran from that. It would be a very different world, but it would be a world that I'd be interested in seeing.
1: Yeah, I i mean, we got X-Men The Hidden Years, which maybe not so much that, but if you were to take this and to do like a Silver Age X-Men Forever from it, throwing Neil Adams in there, oh, I would read the heck out of that.
0: Yeah, it'd be, it'd be pretty good, and I really hope I never have to think of The Hidden Years again. That one's rough. <laughs> uh, the Hidden Years picks up directly after this story, and boy howdy, is it a weird one that I am not a huge fan of
1: agreed as nice as it is to see more silver age havoc and polaris because they certainly got sidelined all the time i think that's the most that
0: the hidden years has going for it yeah havoc and polaris also get sidelined halfway through this story too like like they were wont to do
1: yeah well it's okay they'll eventually just go back to school and finish their dissertations and lead long happy lives away from the x-men
0: i'm glad that you could pull one running gag into this show i think that really uh elevates the crossover here miles. <laughs> I
1: do what I can.
0: No, that's good. So this is I I'd say this is an interesting story uh with a lot going for it. Maybe not as good as some of the best stuff we have on here, but definitely uh definitely an odd one. How do you feel about it compared to uh the Excalibur dinosaur issue?
1: Oh man, talk about apples and oranges or apple dinosaurs and orange dinosaurs. If I were to compare it, I mean, this is an important arc continuity-wise. It's got some good character development for Sauron. I might rank it a little bit above on some criteria, but yeah, below on others. I'm curious as to your take, Zach.
0: I think the Dinosaur Excalibur is a tighter story. Uh, this one drags a little bit and does not have consistent plotting. It has a lot to like. I like Sauron in this. Um, not so sold on the second half of the story uh, that has the Magneto stuff. What's actually not too far under the dinosaur Excalibur, uh, is a story that we talked about doing, uh, which is the first two issues of Spider-Man and the X-Men where Sauron doesn't want to cure cancer. He wants to turn people into dinosaurs.
1: Oh man, I am so very fond of that story. And I will say, if we're talking about how tightly a story is put together, I think the Spider-Man and the
0: X-Men story would absolutely come out on top. I, I think that's fair. Uh, a bit below that, we have. Let's see, Glob loves man kills, and I like Glob loves man kills better than this. But I'm also a Glob Herman. Uh, <laughs> Mark, uh, how do you feel about this compared to uh, this? Is going to be a weird comparison, but I want to see your thoughts. On uh, un- or regular X Men thirty nine, that time that Adam X the Extreme went camping with his grandpa.
1: So I love that issue a lot. I love that Adam X started to be a serious character and yet still was named Adam X the Extreme. Yes. But at the same time, I feel like this is a better Silver Age story than that was a 90s story. I think for its time, it elevated its era a little bit better than Adam X going camping did. And I'm so sorry, Adam X, to say this. I still love you. You're still my favorite Third Summer's brother. But I think this one would be a he's little a, higher.
0: He's a very good third Summers brother, and I do feel bad about that for him. But I kind of agree with you. Uh, probably, let's say second pick for third Summers brother Gambit uh, number one. Uh, the first mini for Gambit is at one seventy seven. I think that one's a bit tighter put together than this.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I'm I'm a great big fan of the Gambit series. I think it's my favorite uh, Howard Mackie Nolan's verse story.
0: Mhm. I I think you are absolutely right on that front. Uh ooh. okay. Just a bit below this there is X-Men Origins Gene Grey with which has that real beautiful uh uh Mike Mayhew art uh that I think pushes it's so different than Neil Adams, but I think that very good art compared to the tightness of that one shot might put it a bit ahead of for me, but I think I'd put this above Uncanny X-Men 391, uh, the story where Scott Summers and his dad go on a camping trip.
1: That seems like a pretty good place to put it. Yeah, they're of pretty similar qualities, but I think this
0: one may edge that out. That's good. That would make it our new number 180 on this list. It's the Neil Adams Savage Land stuff. It's pretty good, guys. Yeah,
1: I just wish that Havoc used his powers more. But really, anytime Neil Adams is drawing anything, I want Havoc
0: to show up and use his powers, even if it's not a Marvel comic. Neil, I know you're still working. You're still hustling out there, man. Just draw some circles. Draw a, guy, draw a guy throwing some circles at people. That's all we want.
1: Nobody does it better.
0: It's what the people crave. <laughs> uh, now, I think what, what else the people crave is for this podcast to just finally uh, get get on out of here. Uh, but it's been a great time uh, this entire podcast. Uh, I guess episode is what we call these discrete units of podcasts. Miles, thank you so much for being on. It was an absolute joy. Uh, Where can people find the stuff that you're uh, toiling away at week in and week out?
1: Well, um, I am, of course, half of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men like you mentioned earlier, and we are at explainthexmen.com or on all of the various podcatchers, and we're on Twitter and that sort of thing. That's explain the X-Men with no E at the beginning, because why would you not make an X-Men pun if you have the opportunity to make an X-Men pun? It'd be wild not to. And I also did a podcast a few years back with Elizabeth Alley uh, called Thor, the Lightning and the Storm, talking about the aforementioned Walter Simonson run of Thor. So that's just a little limited run, 14-episode podcast. That one's kind of fun, too.
0: Yeah, it's a real fun thing. If you're interested in that, guys, uh, we had Elizabeth on way back a couple years ago talking about some Thor stories. Uh, So, you know, check that out.
1: Zach, thank you again so much for having me on the show. This has been a blast, and it is a genuine honor to be on your podcast. It is a great X-Men podcast, and I'm happy to have contributed some Dino thoughts.
0: Well, I I would like to thank you for coming from your great X-Men podcast to talk about this great X-Men podcast, which is now how I'm going to describe it as all times. Uh, But uh, that's good. Uh, Helping make this a great X-Men podcast, and I I think you— uh miles may have heard this because i said it earlier on this show is a guy named rob he's over on patreon he threw money our way so thank you rob you're great you want to be like rob patreon.com slash xavier files we're actually going to be revamping that uh coming up on the new year uh so keep an eye out for that we've had some thoughts and some decisions to uh i don't don't know just change things up uh see what happens but it's all for the better uh and that'll be good uh next week guys so soon it's it's Xmas time, and do you know? Do you know who uh, who we decided to uh, bring in for our uh, Xmas episode? I'm excited to find out. Uh, it's friend of the show Christy Edelman. We're going to be celebrating christy Miss over here, and uh, it's going to be a really good time. Uh, but until then, guys, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience.
1: Get it!